The Bob Murphy Show, episode 146. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This one, I am going to try to explain and make sense of the standard Reformed Protestant doctrine of what's called salvation through faith alone, or sometimes they might call it justification through faith alone. So in plain English, the idea is you get into heaven by believing in Jesus, not because your good works outweighed your sins. All right. And so that, that's the idea that what does it mean to be saved or what is the process or how do you become saved? How is it that you enter into the kingdom of God? It's not according to this standard Protestant doctrine. It's not that, you know, yeah, we're all sinners, but, you know, if you really try hard and you repent and you, you, know, you really work on not doing it and God sees that you're really putting in a good enough effort and you turned your life around and you know what, this guy's all right, turns out, you know, on balance, look at his life, you know, he helped that old lady across the street. That kind of made up for the fact that he stole that candy bar when he was eight. And you know what, let's go ahead and let this guy in right? Or a, um, if you've seen the movie, I think it's called Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks. It's a great movie in Rip Torn. And, you know, he's trying to get into heaven. And, and so they evaluate his life to see, you know, can, can you get through the pearly gates kind of thing. So that mentality, even though it's very commonsensical and seems correct, that's a very human way of looking at it. And it's not God's way, again, according to the Protestants. So I'm going to stop giving that caveat, obviously, throughout this let me be clear, this is not all Christians endorse this. And this is actually one of the big um, splits among self-identified Christians. Okay, so that's what I want to explain. Now, if you're not a believer, particularly if you think like this is all hooey and it's like I'm going through and talking about, now, why did Zeus do this in this one story? What was his motivation? So for one thing, people do study Greek mythology, right? So that's not a straw man. There are people that would do that. And they would say there's stuff to learn from it. And so I would say, even if you're not a believer, the fact that like it or not, Christianity has been, you know, one of the biggest influences on our society, period, that you should understand it. But also I would say even just in terms of like the history of ideas, right? So a couple episodes ago, I went through and explained what did John Nash do in his doctoral dissertation, even for people who don't care about game theory. Some of you listen to that probably just to, to hear it. Or down the road, if we talk about, I don't know, Alan Turing or John von Neumann or something, or if you take a philosophy class, probably most of the doctrines that you're taught in terms of, oh, and, you know, Bentham said this, and then so this guy came along and said this, and then this person said that you probably don't agree with any of them, full stop. And yet it's interesting just to study it, just to see. All right. So I'm saying Christianity, not in terms of Ned Flanders, but in terms of like theologians expounding on scripture and trying to come up with systematic defenses of it and expositions of it, 
is a very deep thing that I would say, especially just, you know, reading the Bible itself, has a lot of insight into human nature. And of course, I would say also of God's nature and how he's, his is better than ours. <laughs> and that when in doubt, try to, you know, say what, what's the godly thing to do in this situation, not what's the, the human thing to do. All right. So those are my motivations or my disclaimers, if you will, to try to get you to check it out, to listen to this, even if you're not initially a believer. Also, um, one more line of reasoning along those lines. Um, in case you don't know this, I've said this a few times, but I'll say it again. I used to be what I called a devout atheist. Okay. So if, you know, if you're of the idea that, oh, Bob, you only believe this stuff because you were raised this way and, you know, geez, you're, you're so rational, Bob, when it comes to capital theory, but then, man, you start talking about biblical stuff and woo, all of a sudden you forget how physics work. I understand why you think that because I used to think like that too about Christians who were, quote, rational in other areas and I respected them in secular matters. But I'm just here to tell you that I now think that's very naive and that Christianity, as deep as you go into it, it just keeps getting richer. It's like fractals or something. And things that if you just look at one little piece of it, it does seem kind of crazy or absurd. But then when you have the whole picture in mind, it all fits together and it makes more sense than a conventional secular worldview. Just to give you, so let me back up what I said that I was I used to be a devout atheist just to show you. So I planned on writing when I was in undergrad at that point in my life, I had been raised Catholic. Then I fell out of that. I stopped believing in it because I was scientific. And I, uh, I planned on writing a definitive refutation of Christianity because I had read like H.L. Mencken's treatise on the gods. I had read, I think it's, was it George Smith, I think, had a, like a collection on atheism. And that was all good stuff. I read Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason. All good stuff, I thought. But I thought, no, no, there's lots of arguments, things that, you know, they left on the table that we could use to bludgeon Christianity. And I even remember, I think it was H.L. Mencken said something, he was passing a remark in his book saying, you know, there have been many attempts to, quote, blow up Christianity and they've all failed. And again, he's writing as a cynic who doesn't believe in it. And that surprised me that he said that. And I thought, well, gee, if they all failed, well, then I'm going to do what Mencken said hasn't been done yet. Another interesting thing, again, I hope I'm not misquoting this, but I'm pretty sure, because I was shocked that he said this, that Mencken, the way he explained, like, why did tribes believe in medicine men and, you know, things like the people, the aboriginal people that we think are primitive and they have these, and his explanation was sensible. He was saying he thought that, oh, probably what happened is the shaman or the magic uh, or, or the medicine man, whatever they called them, at one point intervened, you know, did something and then nature apparently obeyed, but it was just a spurious coincidence in reality. But people thought, oh, he did it. And so he said something like, you know, if the tides were threatening to flood and the medicine man goes out and raises his arms and says some, you know, incantations. And then if in reality the tides receded unexpectedly, then they would have said, oh, wow, this guy has powers. And like, all he'd have to do was just do something big like that once. And that would be enough for him to get street cred. Even if other times he failed, you know, he could explain it away by, oh, it's because you people didn't believe in me or whatever. So that's what Mencken was saying to explain, you know, how does this stuff persist or how does it get going perhaps? And when it came to Christianity, again, I hope I'm not, I, I tried to go verify this and I could never quite get it. And I didn't want to just go ahead and buy the book and read it again from scratch. But I'm pretty sure Mencken went to explain the 
just undeniable phenomenon that Christianity was, said that, yeah, there was this guy, Jesus, going around predicting that he was going to die and come back from the dead. The Romans did crucify him. He was apparently dead. And then he survived and came back. So Mencken wasn't saying he was the son of God and you know came to die for the sins of the world, and that sort of thing. But he was just, that's how he explained it, saying, yeah, this guy just happened to get lucky and predict his own death and resurrection and events looked close enough to that for whatever reason, you know, freak thing, you know, fluke coincidence. And that's why Christianity took off because the followers were like, this guy's the real deal. He just came back from the dead, even though I believe Mencken thought it was just kind of a freak thing. Like, in other words, the reason we know about Jesus and not about a million other people who have claimed to be spiritual leaders through the ages is Jesus was the guy who happened to get lucky and predict his own death and resurrection. I think that's part of what Mencken's worldview. So anyway, I'm just mentioning that because later that helped me in my own transition from atheism back to being a Christian. So in any event, I was getting ready to write the definitive refutation of Christianity because I thought it hadn't been done yet, that I was going to write the best one to date. And then, of course, at some point, I abandoned that project because I believed in the gospel. So in this episode, I'm not going to go tell the story that I need to think through it and try to remember exactly what happened and and I don't want to get do that right now. But I'm, my point is, and also too, just to show you what a smug little punk I was, here, let me tell you two other ones. So I'm, I was an undergrad at Hillsdale College, which it wasn't officially a religious school, but you know there were a lot of religious people on campus and you know it was taken very seriously institutionally. And they had one, this guy came and he was a volleyball player and he was really good but he was also a Christian and he like used his volleyball performance to sort of spread the gospel. Like that was his shtick. And so, and, and there's one thing he, I think I'm getting these details correct. He, uh, he was like taking on our entire, I think girls volleyball team or something like he by himself, you know, which is a thing to do. And I don't know if the girls were intentionally like not trying to shoot the ball totally on the opposite side of the court from where he was. I don't, I don't remember exactly how, but the point was, you know, he was doing things that were pretty impressive. And, you know, he was motivated saying, no, 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 I do this stuff, you know, because I give all the glory to God. Da, 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 da. But it had turned out that the girls beat him in this, you know, exhibition match. Okay. So again, he's like putting on a show just so you understand the context. And like the students who wanted to go to this thing are all in the, in the gym watching this thing. So a lot of it's just, you know, him telling stories and talking to the crowd and stuff, but then occasionally going and, you know, doing some feat involving volleyball. So anyway, when the team beat him, I think it was the girls' team. It could have been the boys. I don't remember. But it was definitely like 6v1 or something. <laughs> and so when they were maybe 4v1. And so when they beat him, I was tempted. I was going to yell out and say, where's your God now? But I, I think I didn't probably just because I chickened out. All right. But I'm just saying that's the kind of wise guy I was. A different story. We had these things, um, like these lecture series at Hillsdale. And one of the speakers came and the title of his lecture was something like, make sure God is on the board of directors of your business, something like that. And so his point was, you know, okay, you young people, you're going to be leaders in industry and academia and blah, 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 and government when you go out into the world and you got to take that responsibility seriously. But just remember, you know, when you're making decisions about your company or which direction, you know, you're going to go in your career, you know, make sure you, you include God's perspective in that decision, Right, that's what he was saying. But again, the way he formalized that was to say, make sure God is a member of the board of directors of your company. And so, and so that at the end of these talks, you know, kids could line up at the microphone 
and ask questions of these visiting speakers. And so it occurred to me, I was going to line up or, you know, get in the line. And then when it was my turn, I was going to say, yeah, uh, Mr. So-and-so, thank you so much for the talk. It was very interesting. Now you said you should put God on your uh, board of directors. So my question is when, when we have a, when you have a vote to, you know, to decide some company policy, does God get one vote or three? I was going to do that. And I didn't, again, not because I realized that would be wrong, Bob, and don't be a smug punk because I thought I would get in trouble, right? So I was just, it was the worst of both worlds. <laughs> I was tempted to do something like that, and I only didn't do it because I was a chicken, not because I didn't want to be a jerk. Okay, so that's where I was coming from. So I'm saying if that sounds like you or if you're like, oh yeah, I want to hang out with that guy, I'm saying I now look back on that stuff and am embarrassed that that's where I used to be, all right? So- Having said all that, now let's transition. One thing I should mention when it comes to understanding theological controversies is that you can use the Bible as source material, as evidence for your position. And I'm only saying that because I remember being astonished. It was, again, I was an undergrad. And at this point, I wasn't a believer. And some kids were arguing like, Somebody was playing, I don't know, probably like a rap, like Easy E or something. And some other guy, like real ostentatiously, looked up at the sky and said, God, I'm sorry these guys are playing this music. I don't condone it. And so then my other buddy, who was a Christian, but thought it was okay to be in the room when someone else was playing a bad song, was arguing with the guy. Right. And so, the, and what, what interested me, was that they were, weren't just using abstract principles, but that they were pulling out Bible verses and throwing them at each other, like to try to show, you know, to, to back up their position. So um, that's what I'm just, I'm just mentioning in case, that's, in case you think like, oh yeah, if there is a God and how could we know something like that, then his ways are mysterious. We could never understand his mind. He's so far above us. And so, you know, all we can do is just try to live the best life possible and then we'll see what happens you know, when we're dead, either we're just in the ground getting eaten by worms, in which case doesn't matter, or if there is a God, we'll meet him at that point, and then we'll figure out if we pass the test, right? There's a lot of people who think like that, and I want to say, no, what the Bible purports to be is revelation from God. It's like an instruction manual, you know, from the, you know, say, hey, from the guy who created humans, here's how humanity works. Read this book to understand more to unlock the secrets, to understand what motivates you and how to get more out of your model, okay? So again, I'm just, even though it seems funny for me not to be mentioning that because it's so obvious, I'm just gonna go ahead and, and say that. And yes, I know that if you don't believe in the Bible, then why would I read the thing? But I'm saying, if it is true, then that's one way to, to learn about it. It's also, I wanna say, you might think, oh, well, you can prove anything with the Bible. No, you can't. It's sort of like the, what Jordan Peterson says about postmodernism, that yes, postmodernism is correct when it says you can look at a given text and there's an infinite number of possible interpretations about what does it mean or what was the author trying to say with it. But Peterson's reaction to that is to say where the postmodernists go wrong is when they leap from that true statement to the false one of saying every interpretation is equally valid. He's saying that's not true. And so likewise with scripture, yeah, you can, especially if you take something, a real short quote out of context, you can quote, prove anything you want with the Bible, but not in terms of a reasonable man's standard or a reasonable reader standard. Okay, so again, in case you, you think that, oh, this is just a waste of time, a bunch of 
people arguing. So an analogy would be in the fractional reserve banking debate among Austrians. One of the one of the issues, which is not decisive, I grant you, but one of the issues is, oh, what did Mises think about it? And people argue about that. And yes, there are certain passages where Mises does say nice things about fractional reserve banking, but you know, I, as a defender of the view that Mises thinks fractional reserve banking causes the boom bust cycle, can go in and try to show, look at, no, that doesn't contradict. You know, Mises can say these nice things about it over here. That doesn't take away from what he said over here clearly saying it causes the boom bust cycle period right so likewise with the bible there are there are some things like in terms of like the the sequence of events on holy week there are certain things where one gospel says one thing another seems to contradict it so i'm not talking about stuff like that i'm talking about like doctrinal issues a lot of times um it looks superficially like there's a contradiction when I think actually when you, you know, you listen to really uh, learned theologians talk about it and they, and they can show you, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Especially if you look at these other passages over here, you see the context. This is what the person was meant by that. And you see, it's not a contradiction. Okay. So I'm just saying a lot of stuff like that's happened. Let me give you an example of, I'm, I'm going back to something earlier. I said, where it all fits together, where you can't just look at one component. All right, so what we're talking about right now, this idea that your salvation comes through faith in Jesus, one obvious problem people have with that is, oh, so if I'm a serial killer and I repent on my deathbed, then I get into heaven, whereas somebody who stole a candy bar but you know just doesn't know if there's a God or not, he goes to hell, that doesn't make any... Okay, so that's... And I'm going to try to deal with that at the end of this episode, that kind of stuff. But another objection is to say, well, wait a minute. What about like the the little baby who dies in a car accident before hearing the gospel? Or what about, you know, the Aboriginal tribes in South America or something who haven't been reached by missionaries yet? So they don't know who Jesus is. So they're going to go to hell and burn forever just because, uh, you know, the Europeans had trouble hacking through the jungle. That doesn't sound right. And so in response to that, it's very natural and human to just make up stuff like what was called, um, you know, the concept of limbo, for example, and say, oh, well, you know, there's this temporary holding place where like unbaptized babies go to this place and, you know, because they're not in hell because that's not fair, but technically, you know, they didn't get all the right sacraments if, you know, if you're a Catholic or they didn't um, accept faith in Jesus if you're, you know, reformed. And so what are you going to do? And I listened to this, this Bible study uh, instructor one time walked through the problem with, with doing that stuff. And he, was, and he was, you know, he was a quote, normal person. Like he understood why it was shocking to our sensibilities to say, you know, if you like, oh, what are we going to say? We're going to send the unbaptized baby into the fire. You know, he, he understood that stuff. And, and by the way, I'm not endorsing that conventional understanding of what hell is, just in case that's bothering you. All right. I'm just, stating that so you understand that I get the natural revulsion for the people who first encounter these positions. And so what this Sunday school teacher was going through was to say, okay, but look what happens if you follow that train of thought and you just start making stuff up that, you know, cause you're trying to fix an apparent problem with the doctrine as, as you would derive it from the Bible. And he was saying, okay, so if what you want to say is, you know, really if you try to reconstruct it, it's like, oh, so it can't be held against you if you've never heard the gospel, right? If no one's ever taught you about Jesus, 
then it's not your fault if you haven't accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And so therefore you couldn't, you know, a, a just God couldn't condemn you to hellfire for eternity because you didn't accept his son. If no one ever told you about his son, how, you know, how would we do that? And so, but then if you make up this asterisk and say, okay, this only applies to people who've heard the gospel. So the guy was pointing out, okay, if that's true, then that means the worst thing you could possibly do to somebody is share the gospel with them. Because if nobody shares the gospel with them, then they can't go to hell. Whereas if just one person foolishly tells the person about Jesus, now it's all on that person who heard it. You know, now he has no excuse. And so if he doesn't accept Jesus, you know, according to the way these people try to tweak standard Christianity, boom, now it goes to hell. So the guy was saying, clearly that's not right. I mean, among other things, Jesus instructs people right before, you know, he leaves to go ahead and, and, and spread the gospel. Right. So that, that, you know, that's called the great commission. So that can't, it can't be that that attempt to patch up what seems to be a bad feature of the standard doctrine is correct because that leads to something even crazier. Right. So th that's the kind of thing I mean, where looking at these things in isolation, I understand why people say, Oh, that doesn't make sense. But when you combine it with everything else, then it slowly does make more sense. Maybe let me give you a different example too, where, um, oh, gee, like God destroys the whole world with a flood. What kind of a sick tyrant, you know, if some human tyrant did that, that would be crazy. You know, that, that would be monstrous. And so God must be a monster then. You better be consistent, Murphy. Okay, right. I, I understand where you're coming from when you say that. But on the other hand, step back. What else does Christianity say about the nature of God? Well, he's the supreme inventor and creator of the universe. All the laws of physics are like his thoughts, right? He holds everything together. So whether you die from a flood or whether you die of quote old age or whether a saber-toothed tiger gets you because you strayed from the camp and went to go look for berries or something, no matter how you die, because God's omnipotent, he designed everything from scratch and he foresaw all of human history from before the Big Bang occurred, if you believe in the Big Bang, there's a sense in which no matter how you die, God made that happen to you, right? It's just like, you know, I like to use the example of, or the analogy of J.K. Rowling writing Harry Potter. It's not like J.K. Rowling killed some characters, but other ones died outside of her will, right? No matter what happens in the Harry Potter universe, it's because J.K. Rowling wanted it to happen like that. Whether it was somebody who was murdered or somebody who died because they were old and had a heart attack, All right? So it'd be goofy to make a distinction among Harry Potter characters about who got killed off by J.K. Rowling and who got killed off from some other cause. That doesn't make any sense. So likewise, yes, if a human tyrant somehow had weather machines and flooded large portions of the earth and killed billions of people, he'd be a mass murderer and he would be morally culpable. But when God does it, it's qualitatively different. And I could just say, cause he's God and he has the right to do it, but moreover or more deeply to see, because no matter what happens. And also too, you could say, oh, well, then why does people need to die? Well, notice that runs into another problem because it's another standard objection to say, well, wait a minute. Why does, if, if God loves us and we get to be with him in paradise at some point, why does he first subject us to this earthly existence where there's pain and suffering? Right? So it's on the one hand, you're criticizing God because he doesn't just bring you into heaven right away. And on the other hand, you're criticizing God. Like, how come we don't get to live forever on this fallen world? 
that's full of pain and suffering. Why do, why do you make it that we have to die at some point? All right. So you see how, again, those things, there's at least a tension between those two critiques of God, right? And the, the more you see the full picture. So just to make sure you're not missing the big point here, I'm saying God destroying the earth with a flood, except for Noah and his immediate family and, you know, two of each of the animals. That sounds crazy. You know, besides you might think, oh, scientifically, it's rather implausible, isn't it? Besides that, but just morally, like what's the motivation of this character, the God of the Bible? That sounds bad if you're thinking of him as a human with a lot of power. But again, it's, that's not what he is. He's the creator of the universe and everything that happens is because of his will or is consistent with his will, put it that way. So once you look at it from that perspective, then some of these objections fall away as being goofy. Hey, everyone. Let's just take a break from the discussion for me to mention, if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear it more frequently, that I encourage you to support the show. For details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay. So let me do a standard thing here just to establish the doctrine. And the reason I'm going to do this is I just remember I, this was a surprise to me that I was taking a class one time and the pastor had handed out a worksheet and among the questions it said something like, when you die and you're standing before the gates of heaven, what justification will you use for why you should be allowed in? Something like that. And I put something like, well, I always tried to speak the truth even when it was at personal cost or something like that. And so the guy, he was like basically telling me, no, Bob, your answer is wrong. And he pulls out a Bible and just starts going through and giving me scripture after scripture to show me that, you know, your works are like filthy rags da, 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 and, you know, going through and, and explaining this. And I remember I was surprised because number one, he was just using the Bible to try to convince me of something. And at that point, I still had this notion of like, no, man, it's just between you and God. And, you know, what can we say? Because it's just, you know, he's so up there and how can we know what he thinks? And so that was kind of surprising. But also the passages he was showing me, I mean, I thought I had read at least the New Testament fairly carefully at that point in my life. And I didn't, the stuff he was reading, no one had ever explained this to me before. So that's partly why I'm doing this in case you think you're vaguely familiar with the Bible and this notion of salvation through faith alone hasn't jumped out at you. That's partly what I'm doing with this. Okay. So a ton of passages to back up this position come from Paul. And so here, let me just read some things. So, uh, so this is Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Or Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Um, let's see. Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Ephesians 2.8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, and by the way, these are all the ESV translations. Okay. Uh, Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. All right, so that's an interesting passage right there. I gotta read it again. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. All right, so 
it's it's extremely subtle and complex because it's like, well, then what's the point of the law? And you know, it's thing like through through law sin entered the world, but then through grace by from God we're saved from it. So the the idea is the law is there so we know what sin is. Like we need to know what right and wrong are. So God's telling us, but then how do we get to have union with God? It's not because, oh, we're good enough because, oh, we follow the law closely enough. Among other problems, it's kind of arbitrary, right? God's perfect. So really the only way you could be justified in hanging out with him and being in his presence is if you were perfect also, right? It doesn't make sense. Oh, you know, as long as you didn't commit more than 13% sins during your life. I mean, what, if you get what I'm saying, like that's, that's pretty arbitrary. Now let me, here, here's another one too. In Acts 16 through 31, um, someone's asking, you know, what do we have to do to be saved? And says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, right? Not reform your life and start giving more to the poor and stop taking the Lord's name in vain and stop coveting your neighbor's cattle. And then, you know, if you do that sufficiently and you don't backslide too much, then you will be saved. No, that's not what they said. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Okay. Also, there's some real famous ones in case you say, well, what does Paul know from the words of Jesus himself? So perhaps the most famous is John 3.16, right? That's the one, that's the passage that like people will hold up at football games and stuff. Like, you know, just hold up signs saying John 3.16. So here I'm reading from John chapter 3, starting at uh, verse... I'll just start at the beginning. The whole thing's great. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And by that, they meant miracles. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, so you're being born again, right? It's not unless, you know, one stops doing, you know, a sufficient number of sins. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it? If I tell you heavenly things, no one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the son of man, the son of man's Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, and then so now we go into John 3. Now it's, we're hitting verse 16, which is the, the money one. So this is still Jesus talking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. All right, so that's, that's it. That's it right there. John three sixteen. 
I'll read it again. This is Jesus talking, right? So you can't say, well, it's Paul's interpretation and what does he know? This is, if you're a Christian, this is the son of God speaking, telling someone, you know, what's up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I wish sometimes people would not just cut it short there because 17 is good too. This is verse 17. So this is what he's, you know, he's continuing this teaching that he's given this guy, Nicodemus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Okay, so when, you know, when we talk about how is it that you get eternal life, it's not just Paul who says stuff along those lines. It's Jesus right there. Like clearly, unambiguously, how do you have eternal life? You believe in Jesus. You believe in his name. Okay, give you a different one. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has it passed from death to life. Okay, now let me, now that I've given you a lot of the prima facie evidence for it, let me go ahead and acknowledge there's other passages you can read that sound like they're saying the opposite, or at least they're saying there's more to the story than just this. Um, some famous ones are from James. So let me go ahead and read that. So this is from the book of James, chapter two. I'll uh, start at verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? So I'm reading that because this that's coming before the part that people who don't believe in salvation through faith alone bring up. Right? So now I'm going to go into a portion of scripture that seems to contradict the stuff I was just reading from Paul and even Jesus. So now this is still James, but now this is chapter two, verse 14, coming right after the stuff I just read. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, right? So the way um, Vernon McGee, he has that famous series through the Bible, he reconciles these two and he says, it's not, you know, don't view it as James and Paul opposing each other. He said, instead view them as being back to back, both fending off heresies coming from outside. And he's saying what Paul is fighting against is the people who say, you need to have works to be saved. And he's saying what James is arguing against is people who say, once you're saved, don't worry about it. You don't need to do good works. Okay, so you can see how just reading that part that I just read there at the end, it seems like, come on, Bob, isn't he clearly saying you need more than just faith? But that's why I also read the earlier portion, 
from James that he's saying, if you break just one little part of the law, even though you've kept everything else faithfully, you're guilty of the entire law of breaking everything. So he's certainly not saying you got to keep the law. And as long as you're good enough, then you can be saved. He clearly isn't saying he's saying, if you screw up on one little thing, you're guilty of violating the entire law. Okay. So there's, there's certainly not the doctrine there that you just need to be good enough. Okay. What he's arguing against, and this is what McGee was trying to say again, is that you, you shouldn't, if you're saying, Oh, I have faith. I don't need to do works now. You know, get out of my face that that's not correct. He's saying someone who has faith will be able to tell by their works. All right. We would know it. You know, it's going to transform your life. You're going to be born again. And so that's going to show up in your works. All right. That's what I believe James is saying in those passages. Also, I'm not going to get into it right now, but it's, it's very interesting that James and Paul both use the example of Abraham believing in the promises of God to bolster their position. James, or sorry, Paul is saying, see, Abraham believed in the promises of God, even though on the surface that seemed crazy. You know, he was old, his wife was old and barren, and God's telling him, you're going to have all these descendants. And he's like, what? what? Are you kidding me? But yet Abraham believed it. And so it says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul looks at that and says, see, it's his faith that justified Abraham. Whereas James looks at that and says, see, it's what he did that, <laughs> that justified him. It's his works. So, and that's interesting because, and it might be of interest to Austrians, because one way of reconciling some of these things is to say believing in something or having faith is a work. It's, it's action in the Messessian sense. And you know who else takes that tack? None other than Jesus. And so a very interesting passage is in John 3, 36. Oops, it wasn't, it wasn't that. that. What I just referenced was a different example of Jesus saying something that prima facie seems to justify or to confirm the doctrine of faith through salvation alone. Or sorry, salvation through faith alone. I'm holding a baby at this point, folks. He got up from his nap. So I'm just going to, he seems happy right now. I'm just going to keep going. Um, and it's good for him to hear this stuff. What I meant to say was in John chapter six. So here I'll start at verse 25. So this is fascinating. This, like I say, kind of unites the two. Like say, is it salvation through believing in God versus salvation in doing what God tells you to be obedience? That, that maybe that's the way it looks like there's this dichotomy, Right. Whether, oh, you, do you trust in God versus do you do what God tells you to do, right? And it seems like the people who believe in standard Reformed Protestantism are just focusing on the belief and the faith, whereas I think Catholics, and by the way, I hope I'm not misconstruing the Catholic position, but even though I was raised Catholic, I don't claim that I really understand, you know, its, it's, it's official doctrines. Um, but the people who push back against that Say, no, no, there's plenty of passages. And I'm not reading them, but there's plenty of passages where Jesus says things like, you know, you may say you're my follower, but unless you follow my commands, you're not. And, you know, you'll, you'll come in the last days and say to me that I'm your, that you're my follower, but I'll say, where were you, you know, when you weren't helping the poor, that kind of stuff. So people saying, see, you got to obey God too. That's important. And I want to say, maybe that's a false dichotomy, folks. And certainly Mises would think so, that it's not that action consists in, going and exerting your body physically, whereas thinking is an action. You know, Mises says that thinking is action in, the, in his sense. 
And so listen to this. So this is John chapter six, starting at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So this is right after Jesus had fed thousands of people with a few loaves and you know, he performed a miracle. Do not work for the food that perishes, like you know, it's regular bread, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the father has set his seal. My son is getting happy about this part. It is exciting, isn't it? Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? So why are they speaking in that way? Because Jesus introduced that language. He says, and notice again, what did Jesus say to them? He said, do not work for the food that perishes, meaning don't go and toil for conventional bread in the earthly sense, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. So now, so since Jesus just told them, like these are the crowds, don't work for regular bread, work for the bread that I'm going to give you that will give you eternal life. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. Now you might think he would say, love your neighbor as yourself or love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You might think he would say that because elsewhere he said that summarizes the law and the prophets. Those are the greatest commandments. So if Jesus just is saying, you got to do the work of God for me to give you the bread that gives eternal life, that's what you should be working for. And they say to him, okay, well then more specifically, what do we need to do to get this bread you're talking about? You might have guessed that that's what he would say. They say, oh, because elsewhere I've established, or I don't know the timeline if he has yet to say it, but he will say, if he hasn't already in this timeline, that the most important commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's it, boom, that summarizes the law and the prophets right there. So you would think that's what he would tell them, right? That's not what he says. This is what he says. So they said to him, just refreshing your memory, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And that's the full thing right there. And then they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Right? So they're saying, okay, you're telling us we got to believe in you to get this eternal life, but convince us, you know, that's, that's kind of a big ask. All right. So my point in reading this to you is notice what he just did there. He took it and so said, yes, to re- for me to give you the bread of life, which is himself, he is the bread of life. He's going to go on to say in a second here, I'm going to, I'll even read that just because it's so awesome. I'll read that in a minute. But he's setting it up. Like, what are the conditions by which you receive me, the bread of life, to get eternal life? You got to do the you know, work for that. And then they say, well, specifically, what do we do? And this is what he said. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Right? So that's when people flat out ask Jesus, what do we do to get eternal life? That's what he said. He said, the work you need to do is believe in me, not go love your neighbor yourself, not even love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He said, no, you need to believe in me. That's the work you do to then receive eternal life. Okay. Now, let me just go ahead and read the rest of this because it's so awesome. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So I think what they're saying there is, you know, the way the ancient Israelites as they're wandering around the desert knew Moses was from God, was a man of God, is through him, 
you know, God fed us with manna in the wilderness. We should have all died out there. We were kept alive for 40 years to this miracle. So what are you going to do? You're talking about feeding us with bread. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All right, I'll stop there just because I don't want to get too far afield. But again, notice he didn't say I'm the bread of life. Whoever obeys my commands shall not hunger. He said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so what I'm claiming here is it is well established, not just from Paul, but from Jesus' own mouth that the way he, you are saved through him is by believing in him. You know, you could say, or believing in his name. And you could talk about what does that mean exactly, but it's certainly not, you have to go and sin below a certain threshold. That's certainly not what he's saying. Okay, now let me step back from that and say, all right, maybe that is what the Bible says, but maybe the Bible's crazy. Maybe that's a monstrous doctrine. Maybe that's crazy. Let me try to make sense of it in closing here just with some observations. So for one thing, when you're watching Star Wars, right? And then, what is that? Episode six, which is, you know, the third movie, Return of the Jedi. And at the end, I hope I'm not spoiling it for you. uh, You know, Vader has been the supreme villain, one of the best villains in cinematic history. And at the end, Luke turns him back, doesn't he? Vader realizes the emperor's evil and what, what have I been doing working for this monster for so many decades at this point? And he picks him up and kills him. And then, you know, he's dying because his suit gets injured or, or damaged. And he tells Luke something like, you know, tell your sister you were right about me or something like that. You know, and so he died. And then later, you know, when they're on, I guess they're on Endor and they had the bonfire and whatever, and they're burning Vader's body. And Luke looks off and he sees it's Yoda, Ben, you know how like the dead Jedi, you can see him in the afterlife as they're glowing and stuff. And then it's who you know is Anakin. And, and the, originally they just had some guy and then later they, you know, substituted in the actor who was playing Anakin, you know, in the, in the prequels, right? So my question is, when any of you were watching that, did you get mad? Did you get outraged? What is George Lucas trying to say? It's all right to go ahead and blow up entire planets as long as on your deathbed, you say, oh, wait a minute, I was wrong. Tell your sister you were right about me, that it's all good, and you get to hang out with Yoda forever. That's crazy. You don't get to do that. That's not fair. Only people who are really good Jedi should hang out with Yoda. No, I mean, I'm hoping that's not what you say. You're a pretty cynical, bitter person if that's the way. No, you should have said like, oh, yes, Luke did it. He, he turned him back. That's all, you know, he, he did it before the guy died. That's awesome. Good job, Luke. You got him to, to, you know, realize he had been tragically seduced by the dark side and that, you know, monster Palpatine tricked him. Oh, good job, Luke. You, you pulled him back. Isn't it awesome? The story of redemption. That, that's what you should have said. Yes, of course he's going to hang out with Luke or uh, Yoda and Ben because he's back to his old self. It's Anakin. He's Anakin again. He's not Vader, right? So if you get how it works there, and certainly George Lucas isn't a moral monster for depicting it that way, that's pretty much what's going on with the Christian doctrine. 
right? Everybody's a sinner. It's not that, you know, there's some good people and bad people. No, everybody's a bad person if you're going to use the law, like James said. And Jesus said that too, you know, preaching, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. But I'm saying to you, if you look at another woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. Or if you have hatred for your brother, you've murdered him, right? So Jesus isn't screwing around. You got to be perfect. Just like he was literally perfect in his life. So God showed us how to live when he came to earth as Jesus, but he certainly wasn't saying, and you got to do that to hang with me because that's impossible. So yeah, he's showing you the perfection, the ideal to which we should attain or or strive after which we should strive. But he wasn't saying in order for you to pass the test, you got to get a hundred percent. But then when you say, oh, what do we need to get? Is it 82? Good. I mean, that's pretty arbitrary, right? So I think, again, the Star Wars analogy, you might think it's silly, but I think that's great to drive home the, the, the goodness of this doctrine. Um, another way of looking at it is when you're saved, one of the ways of describing it is to say that you are adopted into God's family. You are a son now of the king or a daughter if you're a girl, right? So we're now adopted sons and daughters of God through Jesus. And so when you're, you know, think of just in earthly terms, your kid could go do some crazy stuff. Even if your kid's a murderer is sitting in prison and you go talk to him, he's still your kid. I mean, you might say, I disown you. You're not my son, but you're wrong when you say that he is your son. All right. And I would certainly say you should still love him, right? You shouldn't, it, it would be bad. Let me put it this way. If you want to just look at it in terms of utilitarianism or pragmatism, if you went around, if you told your kids, look, as long as you don't screw up too much, then you're still my kid. But if you screw up too much, you're not my kid anymore. I don't love you. That's not going to make your kids go do the things you want them to do and make you proud, right? That's going to backfire on you. you. Not only is it the correct thing to do, I would say, as a parent, but also it's more conducive to your kids making you proud. If you tell them, I love you unconditionally, you're my kid, you can't even imagine until maybe you have your own kids how much I love you and I would die for you. And, you know, by the way, though, I'm wiser than you. I have your best interest at heart. Here's my advice on how you should live your life. You know, as the, as the kid gets older and you can't, you know, just physically, you know, like a, like a tiny kid, you keep him from running out in the street because you just physically contain him. But at some point, you know, they're big enough. You got to just reason with them or appeal to them. And, you know, what can you do? Except hopefully you've lived your life with them and your relationship is such that they believe you when you say, I'm telling you this for your own good. And hopefully you're right. So we're bad parents compared to God, but I'm trying to get across. You can see how the better parent you are, how is it that you're going to get your kid to quote, do the right thing when moral situations, dilemmas arise. It's not if they think, oh man, besides the other consequences that might ensue, my parents are going to disown me if I do this choice that's actually not a good thing for, you know, that might work in certain instances, but long run, no, that's not going to be conducive to your kid having a flourishing life and quote, making you proud. Um, And I guess the last thing I'll say is if you're thinking of it in terms of like morality or whatever, okay, for one thing in the context of the Bible, again, if we're just going to go along with this framework just on its own terms, God created everything, including us. So he certainly has the right. He can let, quote, let into heaven, whoever he wants. And and again, folks, I'm not going to get into it in this episode. My view of what hell is, is not the orthodox one. 
or actually what I want to say is what is now considered to be the Orthodox view is not what the early church thought hell was or what I think Jesus is talking about in certain passages when nowadays with modern eyes, we look at that and say, oh, see, Jesus is saying, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you end up getting burned forever. I don't think that's what he was saying. But again, well, I'll put that to the side because that's pretty controversial. And But I'm just saying it in case that's what's tripping you up right now. That if you don't care about so much who gets into heaven, but rather you're thinking, what's the alternative? Don't let that trip you up right now. But certainly, like where I'm coming from is, suppose you, quote, get into heaven and then you see Adolf Hitler there or Joseph Stalin, you have no right to be outraged, right? You can't go to God and say, um, excuse me, there seems to have been an oversight here because this person got in and I know that he doesn't belong here. And so therefore a mistake has been made somewhere. I'm not saying it's you. Maybe Peter's out there taking bribes. I don't know, but I'm just saying something. No, who the heck do you think you are? You don't get to make a call like that. So that's one thing. Beyond that though, suppose... Well, let me, let me sort of motivate with a story. This is the last point I'll make. Great story of the Bible. Joseph, um, boast, you know, son of uh, Jacob. And Bo- Joseph boasts to his other brothers, like, oh, I had a dream and you all bowed down and, you know, I was in charge of you. And they, don't, they can't stand this guy, this kid. All right, he's, a, he's just, a, oh, he's full of himself. Oh, man. So they put him into a pit and then end up selling him into slavery, right? That's, that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> you know, you've had problems. Just, Jeez, I didn't like my older brother growing up. Well, did he sell you into slavery? Because that's what happened to Joseph. So then he goes, a long story, you know, goes to Egypt because God is with him, helps him interpret dreams. Joseph ends up being in charge of everything as the administrator. And so then when the famine hits, he's actually able to not only rescue Everybody, because they've been building, you know, because he saw it coming or, you know, through God, they, they've been building, you know, they stored grain during the fat years. So now, you know, Egypt is in a position to lend others and to take over. And Jacob and his, Jacob sends, you know, Joseph's brothers to go get a loan. And eventually he reveals himself to them, because they thought he was long dead, obviously. They sold their brother into slavery and then never heard about him again. So they figured he was dead. And so then Joseph finally reveals himself to them. And you can imagine, besides being shocked, they're probably terrified, right? Like, uh uh-oh, here we are beseeching the Pharaoh wanting to borrow food, basically. And uh, the guy in charge of this turns out to be the brother we long ago sold into slavery and left for dead. This doesn't look good for us. And Joseph says to them, don't worry. What you intended for evil, God used for good. All right? And that's stand just again, the the best example is humans murdering Jesus on the cross, and that's the way God saved the world. So what we intended for evil, God used for our ultimate, you know, the ultimate goodness. Okay, so what happened though in the Joseph story? The person who was the earthly victim of their sin, namely Joseph, forgave them because he saw God's plan. He saw how, oh, how God's going to use this. It's not that Joseph said, no, guys, you actually didn't do anything wrong. You didn't really sin. No, he, they, they sinned. They did something horrible. But he was saying, I saw now how God used that to actually save Israel by putting me in a position to advise the Pharaoh to start stockpiling grain during the fat years because this famine was coming. That wouldn't have happened had you guys not cast me in the pit and then you know, ended up selling me into slavery. So likewise, let's say you get to heaven and every single person who, was, who died in the Holocaust is sitting there and they say, oh, we 
don't hold it against, you know, our captors at Auschwitz or, you know, Hitler, because, you know, we forgive them. They, what they did was horrible. Don't get me wrong. They didn't do it trying to serve good, you know, grants, you know, what they were doing was bad, but we personally forgive them because now from our vantage point in eternity and in, in presence of, of the Lord, we see how he actually used that. And it's, it's gorgeous when you see what he did with that, with that horror and that monstrosity, God actually turned it to serve his purposes. And it's gorgeous when you see it from this vantage point. And, you know, it's not like we're suffering now. We're in eternal bliss with the Lord. So yeah, we, we, we let it go. So who are you to say, no, 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 no. I'm going to pout over here in the corner and be mad that Hitler's up here with us because look at all the stuff he did down there. And also you'd be a hypocrite. He's like, okay, look at all the stuff you did, right? So that's, maybe that's one way to look at it too, all right? And in any event, we've we've talked about enough issues and you can hear there's a baby here who's getting a little bit antsy. So we'll stop there. Thanks for listening, folks. And I uh, encourage you to to read the Bible if you haven't already. (laughs) Go ahead. What I will say is if it's incomprehensible to you, it's not because it's dumb. It's because you don't understand. And I'm not just saying there's a blanket statement. There's other things where you could get into and you can say, yeah, that's just goofy. Don't waste your time. But I'm saying with this stuff, the more you study it, the deeper it is. Okay. <laughs> the baby's now vetoing the rest of this podcast episode. I'll stop there. Thanks, everybody. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.